Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, and we want to look at verses 18 to 22. So let's uh, begin by reading the text. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. You know, it's hard to understand why any person would fail to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior after even once hearing him speak or after seeing him, uh, even one of his miracles of healing. Uh, It's still harder to understand why people continued to reject the incomparable, gracious, loving Son of God after hearing him preach many times and seeing him heal dozens or perhaps hundreds or thousands of people in every sort of affliction. Uh, So it seems totally incredible that God's own chosen people who were given his covenant, his law, his prophets, and his many special blessings would reject the Son of their own God, their Messiah, who their own scriptures had prophesied, the very deliverer whom they claimed to look for and long for. And yet, as you study the gospel accounts, you see that's exactly how most of the Jews responded to Jesus. Uh, Their unbelief and rejection flew in the face of everything Christ said and did right in their midst. The proofs of his divinity, his power, his goodness were obvious. They were beyond contradiction. And yet, as the evidence increased, so did the resistance and rejection of Jesus. At the beginning of his gospel, John prepares us for that response, telling us in chapter 1, verse 11, that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Uh, So from the beginning, Jesus knew that those who rejected him would exceed those who accepted him. In John 5, 38 to 40, he told those who sought to kill him, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Those who rejected Jesus, even after witnessing his miracles, they're like a judge or a jury who, after hearing an open and shut case, makes a decision that's the exact opposite of what the evidence calls for. Jesus' authority was evident, as the people recognized from the beginning of his ministry. Back in chapter 7, verse 29, we saw that the people noted he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Uh, In fact, his teaching was so unique that when the scribes and the Pharisees sent their police officers to arrest him, they came back empty-handed, saying, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. After the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees questioned the man who had been born blind, remember that? Uh, About his, they questioned him after his healing by Jesus 
this former blind man gave them my favorite response that's recorded in Scripture. He says, well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And in John 7:15, the religious leadership is astounded at his teaching in the temple, saying, how has this man become learned having never been educated? In other words, he didn't go to one of our rabbinical schools to be educated in the law, so how is it that he knows it so exceptionally well? When representatives from the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that hated each other, uh, joined up together to try to entrap him with a question about paying taxes to Caesar, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And his answer was so incredibly astute that it says that upon hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. On another occasion, after he cast out a demon, the people said nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. <coughs> Everything about Jesus was astounding and marvelous and humanly unexplainable. It's no wonder that when people marveled at him but did not accept him, Jesus himself would marvel at their unbelief. I mean, just think about it. We marvel at their unbelief when we read about it. So can you imagine what it was like for him? I mean, he did everything to prove his divinity, to prove that he was the Messiah. He fed thousands from, with nothing more than a boy's lunch. He opened blind eyes, healed lepers, cured paralytics, cured, raised the dead, taught with authority like no one had ever seen. And yet they still rejected him. You say, well, why did they do that? Well, Jesus answered that question in John 3, 19 and 20. He told Nicodemus that some people run from the truth because it exposes their sin, which they did not want to give up. He says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So there were many people, including most of the Pharisees, who hated him turned away from him and walked away. They loved their sin. They loved darkness rather than light. And then there were others who were attracted to him. The magnetism of his personality, his power to perform miracles, they were the thrill seekers, but their belief was superficial. They wanted to be thrilled but not changed, entertained but not saved. They came to have him heal their malady and fill their belly with food but they had no staying power. They're like that seed that was sown on rocky soil. But they came, and in each case, something kept them from genuine conversion. Now, here in our text of only five verses, Jesus gives two of the reasons why some people are never genuinely converted. Luke, in his account, gives us a third reason. <clears throat> now, you might wonder, why Matthew includes this little vignette here, uh, especially since Mark leaves out these conversations entirely, and Luke, although he includes similar material, inserts it at a much later point in Christ's ministry, about six months after 
six months before his crucifixion? Uh, the obvious answer is that Matthew wants to show that the same Jesus who had authority over sickness, nature, and demons also has authority over the lives of his disciples. Jesus determines what following him will involve, not us. Therefore, if you're going to follow Jesus, it must be on his terms rather than your own. And in these little stories of his interaction, inter, interactions with potential disciples, Jesus illustrates for us three reasons why some people end up turning away from following him. And these three reasons are, one, personal comfort, two, personal riches, and three, personal relationships. Let's begin by looking at the first one, the desire for personal comfort. Let me read again verses 18 to 20. And when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, first, understand that this passage is linked chronologically to the verses that follow it, but not the verses before it. Okay, This is not the same evening that Jesus healed Peter's mother. Okay, This is another evening. Jesus is somewhere along the northwest or the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, anywhere from Capernaum to Tiberias. Uh, the crowd became so massive that Jesus was weary in his physical body. So he gave orders to go across the lake to the region of the Gadarenes. In fact, on the boat right across, he fell asleep in the back of the boat on the cushion that was there. He wanted to get away for a time of prayer and physical rest. Now, when he gave that command to go, it immediately pressed the issue of commitment upon some of the men who were there in the crowd. At this point, there were more and more people who were following him. So, when it is, while it's clear that when it was clear that he was going to leave the scene, leave the area, some of them decide they want to follow him, but only under certain conditions. Some of these guys are at the very crux of a decision: Do I get in the boat and go, or do I stay? What do I do? There were three of them. Matthew only mentions two of them. Luke adds the detail that there was a third guy whose issue is very similar to the second guy, so we'll deal with them, him later. The first man was interested, but he never came to true salvation because he wanted personal comfort more than he wanted Christ. Verse 19, Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, uh, if I know the attitude of the 12 disciples, I'll bet at least a couple of them probably said or at least were thinking, fantastic. Hey, Lord, this guy would be perfect. In fact, he's even a scribe. He's got religious training that none of us have. He could be a big help. You realize who the scribes were, right? They were the authorities on the law. 
the, the scribes were the ones who were officially qualified by the Jewish authorities to teach. They were highly educated. The scribes were loyal to the system and they were closely related to the Pharisees. They were the teachers. They weren't the followers of teachers. They were the teachers. And generally, the scribes were hostile to Jesus. They generally followed the Pharisees in their antagonism and opposition. So when you have a scribe being willing to follow Jesus, it's actually pretty amazing. He would have had to break with the majority of his fellow scribes if he had become a dedicated follower of Jesus. We don't know what his motive was in making this statement. Perhaps it was genuine. Perhaps he was testing Jesus to see how he would react to such an offer. Uh, the text doesn't give us enough information, so we can't say. But most Bible teachers think that he was interested in following Christ because of how he addresses Jesus. How does he address him? Teacher. Teacher. The Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word that's used here is rabbi. So that is quite an affirmation for him to make. Because the vast majority of the scribes and Pharisees would not refer to Jesus in that way because he had not been trained in a rabbinical school. So this guy says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. He doesn't put any conditions on it in his statement. The statement sounds good. It's unconditional. What a tremendous statement of dedication and permanent commitment. He probably considered Jesus to be the greatest teacher he'd ever heard. He, he marveled at his authoritative teaching and miracles. He may have even recognized that Jesus' teaching and power were from God. And so he says to himself, this is unbelievable. This is fantastic. I want to get close to this guy. Wherever this guy is going, I want to go. He's amazing. Now, let's face it. If this guy showed up in your typical evangelical church today, we'd say, hey, great, we'll take you in. We're, we're eager to do that in evangelicalism. Churches do it all the time. And all it takes is some guy with a degree of some kind from some Bible college and many churches will have him teaching Sunday school within a matter of weeks. Am I right about that? You've all been in other churches, most of you. But Jesus wasn't so eager. Listen to what he says to him. Verse 20. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What a strange statement. I don't know, just out of the blue, at first appearance, it sounds odd, doesn't it? Uh, but what Jesus is doing is telling this guy in proverbial form is the basic comforts of life that even wild animals have, I don't have. Despite his divine authority and miracle working power, his plan did not include self-indulgence, and so he had fewer physical comforts than many animals. He didn't own a home. He was dependent on the hospitality of others, uh, such as Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and others. When he wasn't around their home, he had to sleep outside on the ground. In Luke 8, it, it lists for us the women 
who he had healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, who provided financially for his support. He didn't have any worldly possessions. So he had nothing to offer this guy. You say, well, then why did he bring that up? Because he could read this guy's mind. He knew what this guy was thinking. This guy's thinking, man, Jesus is doing some so many wonderful things. He's providing health for people through his miracles. He understands the law better than any of my teachers. I've achieved so much in my life. I'm a scribe who's gained a lot of personal wealth and comfort. My life is going great. So if I join up with this guy, life will just be complete. I'll have everything I need to be satisfied in life. In other words, he's attempting to cash in on Jesus' popularity. And Jesus refuses to go along with that. Remember what John 2.23 tells us? You might look there. It says, John 2.23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. You read that verse and you go, wow, fantastic. But then verses 24 and 25 say, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. You know what that means? It means he had no faith in their faith. He knew it was shallow, superficial, and thrill-seeking. In fact, in the parable of the soils, he classifies those kind of people. He says there's, there's some seed that lands on rocky soil. And immediately it springs up. But because it has no depth of soil... When the sun comes out, it's scorched and withers up and dies. Those are the people who jump on the Jesus bandwagon. And at first they look like they're alive for Christ, but as soon as persecution starts, as soon as it's not comfortable to be a Christian anymore, as soon as following Christ costs them the basic creature comforts of life, they want out. They run away and stop following Christ and the truth is revealed about their heart that they were never truly regenerated in the first place. This scribe saw Jesus and he was magnetized. But Jesus knew human nature. He knew it was fickle and unstable and self-centered. He knew that human nature hungers for the sensational. So there was the crowd, and the miracles, and the excitement. The scribe is fascinated. I love what uh, R.C.H. Linsky, how he described this scribe. He writes this, quote, He was an idealist, enthusiastic, of sanguine temperament. He is superficial and does not count the cost. He sees the soldiers on parade, the fine uniforms and the glittering arms, and is eager to join, forgetting the exhausting marches, the bloody battles, the graves, perhaps unmarked, end quote. You see, for Jesus, 
This guy's too re ready. He's too eager. He's too quick to make his offer. He's like a the seed on stony ground. It grows quickly. It lacks root. So it dies under the blazing sun of the price that has to be paid. See, this man never understood the basic principle of discipleship, which is self-denial, sacrifice, and suffering. So Jesus hit him with it. He says, I want you to understand one thing. You're not going to get any comfort out of this. You know what the next verse says about him? Nothing. It doesn't say anything about him. You know why? Because he isn't around. He, he left between verses 20 and 21. The Lord nailed him right where he was, and he's out of there. How do we know that? Because you never hear another word about a scribe being a follower of Christ. Isn't Jesus unlike us? We often sugarcoat the message about the cost of following Christ. We want to make it so everyone can get in as easy as possible. He makes it hard in order to keep them out unless they have a genuine commitment. I love the statement, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know what I love about that? That term, Son of Man. Anybody know where that comes from other than Frank? Anybody else know where that comes from? Daniel. Daniel. That's right. Daniel 7.13. Daniel's prophesying that the Messiah would be the Son of Man. And when Jesus comes, he says, I'm the Son of Man. That term is used 84 times in the Gospels. Jesus affirmed that he was the Son of Man, the Messiah. What is it? It's a term of his humiliation. Son of God speaks of his deity. Son of man speaks of his humiliation. He is saying, in my humiliation, I don't even have what the foxes have. And foxes were very common in those parts of the world in those times. And they would burrow these little holes in the ground. And birds, of course, were everywhere and they had their nest. And Jesus says, I don't even have that. In my humiliation, I don't have the basic comforts of life. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to be willing to give those up. In Matthew 10, 16, he told his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, that's not a very inviting thing, is it? Uh, and then he followed that up by saying, But beware of men. For they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. And then in verse 22, he says, you'll be hated by all because of my name. And in verse 23, he says they'll persecute you. And then he sums it all up in verse 24 by telling them, don't think you're any better than me. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. In other words, they're going to come after you like they're coming after me. In John 15, 18, 
He said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. In verse 20, he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then he told them, they will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. Paul told us in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say may be persecuted. It says will be. See, there's a price to pay for being a Christian. We have the blessing of living in a nation in which persecution up to this point hasn't been an issue. But that day is coming, and I think we all see it. The changes in our culture and opposition to Christ and his followers have been vast and deep. I fear for my children and grandchildren, but that's how Jesus said it would be. All we can do is be faithful to our Lord and pray for his strength and mercy. So this guy isn't willing to pay the price. He just wanted to reap the benefits of being one of the inside group following a popular teacher. Perhaps he thought Jesus was the pathway to health and wealth. You know, if so, he would have been, if you think about it, he would have been just another Judas. And no one needs one more of those. So Jesus drove him away. It's like the uh, young person who hears the stories of a pioneer missionary reaching unreached tribes and thinks, oh, that's what I want to be. That is until they go to the mission board's training camp and find out that they can't survive without running water and electricity when they go to their training camp. Or someone thinks that they want to be a great athlete, but they aren't willing to sacrifice to the level that's needed to achieve greatness in their chosen field. I, uh, I had remembered reading about the training regimen of Michael Phelps, the famous Olympic swimmer. So I looked it up when I was studying this just to see what it really was like. Michael Phelps trained in the pool six hours a day, 365 days a year. Every day, six hours in the pool, averaging 80,000 uh, uh, 80, meters, that's 50 miles every week of swimming, as well as doing stretching exercises and eating a very rigid diet in which he took in eight to 10,000 calories per day just to keep from losing muscle mass. Before every competition, he would spend two hours doing stretching exercises to limber up. And then he would spend 45 minutes in the pool swimming over 2,000 meters just to get warmed up before the actual race. That's the level of sacrifice it took for him to become the greatest swimmer of all time, winning 28 Olympic medals, including 23 gold. Wow. And following Jesus takes the same willingness to sacrifice everything else, if need be, in order to follow him.
We do people a grave disservice if we lead them to believe that the Christian way is an easy way. It's not an easy way. I agree there's no thrill like the way of Christ. There's no glory like the end of that way. But Jesus never said it would be easy. He always said you have to take up your cross. In other words, you have to be willing to carry your cross to your own execution. You see, people who want personal comfort, they want to do their own thing. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They just want to add Jesus to their already established life pattern. Or they just want Jesus in order to fit in with a certain stratum of social life in the area where they live. You see, I can take you, some of you who are, grew up in the South like I did, I can take you to places in the South where the movers and shakers in the town are part of a certain church or part of a certain community Bible study or, or whatever. So these people think that if they join that church or attend that Bible study and claim to follow Jesus, they can gain the benefits that come with being a part of the elite of that community. Anyone else ever observe that? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus refuses them. They just want him for the comfort they think he affords. But the reality is that the true followers of Jesus have to give up their hold on everything to be his true disciples. The Christian life, folks, is not adding Jesus to one's own way of life, but renouncing that personal way of life for his and being willing to pay whatever the cost is that it may require. So before we move on to the next guy, let me pause. Are there any comments, questions, or thoughts on any of this so far? You're just sitting there. Okay. All right. Well, there was another man present that day. We read about him in verse 21. He and another man whom Luke mentions in his account faced another barrier, but it's slightly different. This guy is facing the desire for personal riches. Look at verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now this man, like the scribe in verse 19, was a disciple of Jesus. That term does not mean that he was a true, true believer in Christ. It simply means he was a follower, a learner, who unofficially identified with him. At this particular point in time, Jesus has a lot of people following him who are all at different levels of commitment. It was, that was very much the case throughout Jesus' pre-crucifixion ministry. But as they heard the hard demands of Jesus, many of them bailed out. In John 6, Jesus gave the bread of life discourse about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And it was very hard for them to understand and to receive that. And when he told them that there were some of them who didn't actually believe in him, and he, then he summed it all up in verse 65 by saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. 
And then verse 66 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So they were following him and claiming to be his learners. But when his teaching got too demanding and too hard for them, they left. They bailed out. They wanted an easy believism kind of message. And that's not what he was doing. So this guy is one of those kind of disciples. But he makes what on the surface appears to be a reasonable request. He says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now you say, well, that sounds like a reasonable request, right? You can't just leave the old guy laying there dead. Uh, you need to hold a proper funeral. And in the Jewish context, that would have been particularly important because the Jews didn't embalm bodies. So when someone died, they usually buried them within a day. But not only that, Jewish tradition required that a person mourn for his or her deceased father or mother for a period of 30 days. You buried your loved one and then you spent 30 days mourning them. And by the way, Deuteronomy 21, 21 to 23 and uh, Ezekiel 39, 14 to 16 told the Jews that the dead must be properly buried to avoid defiling the land. So the last act of devotion that a son had for his parents was to make sure that he cared for their burial. So this sounds like a very reasonable request by this man. He recognizes that Jesus is on the move. He's going to get in a boat and leave. And so basically he says, Lord, I can't come right now, but I'll catch up with you later after I bury my father. But there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. You see that phrase there, I must first go and bury my father? That was a Jewish colloquial phrase that was then and is still now used in the Middle East that refers to a son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance was distributed. Obviously, such a commitment would involve a long period of time, 30 40 years if the father was relatively young. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, a Swiss medical doctor, Theophilus Waldmeier, uh, spent time in both Ethiopia and Syria as a missionary. And in his autobiography, he records, recounts that he was speaking with a young, rich Turk whom he encountered in Syria. And he was impressed with this young man, so he invited him to go on a trip to Europe that was related to his missions work. And Dr. Waldmeier thought that he could disciple this young man and obtain further education for this young man. And after he was finished, this young Turk could assist him in his medical missions work. And the young man's response was, I must first of all bury my father. And so Dr. Waldmeier said, oh, young man, I had no idea that he had died. I'm so sorry. I hope he 
I wasn't too insensitive. And the young man said, oh, no, he isn't dead. My father's very much alive. It's just the phrase we use. I just have to stick around and fulfill my responsibility until he passes on. And then, of course, I will receive my inheritance. So when this disciple of Jesus says, permit me first to go and bury my father, what he means is, I've been waiting a long time for my inheritance and I don't want to lose it. So can I just hang around here until my dad passes away? You see, a man's inheritance was lost or reduced if he didn't fulfill his responsibilities to the family. So the phrase, I must bury my father, was frequently equivalent to, I want to wait until I receive my inheritance. Yes, I'm sure this guy loved his father, but the thought in his mind is, I don't want to lose my inheritance. He had money on his mind. And Jesus tells him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, again, that's a sharp statement. And at first it seems nonsensical, doesn't it? How can dead people bury dead people? Well, obviously dead people can't bury dead people. That is, unless the first kind are spiritually dead, And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's a proverb. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. This guy doesn't want to risk losing his inheritance by committing himself fully to Jesus. He wants to be associated with Jesus in name, but the focus of his life was on his personal prosperity and well-being, not on serving the Lord. Like Jesus' earlier proverb, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, this seemingly nonsensical expression, allow the dead to bury their own dead, was a proverbial figure of speech that meant let the world take care of the things of the world. The spiritual dead can take care of their own things. In Luke's parallel passage, he adds that Jesus added the statement, But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. In other words, let the secular world take care of its own affairs. You've been called to proclaim the kingdom of God. You're functioning on the wrong level. He's not saying, folks, that Christians are forbidden to go to their loved ones' funerals. He's not saying that if you're a Christian, you're not supposed to make sure your father and mother receive a proper burial. It's a proverb, and what he means is that the world's passing affairs, the coming and going of people and the passing of fortunes from one to another, is all part of a dead system. You're called to a living kingdom. Go and preach the kingdom. You see, this man's priorities were messed up. He made his family a greater priority than following Jesus. On another occasion, Jesus told the crowd following him, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, the issue is loyalty to Christ above all else, including your family, your friends, and self-interest. 
That includes a willingness to sacrifice one's own life for him. I, rem I still remember many years ago when my daughter was going away to college at the Moody Bible Institute. She thought at the time that she might want to become a missionary. She wasn't absolutely committed to it, but she thought she might. And I remember telling my unbelieving Catholic secretary what our daughter's plans were. And she got this horrified look on her face. And she says, why would you ever want your daughter to go to someplace like that where she might be killed or whatever and you never see your grandchildren? I said, because I'd rather have her in the will of God than sitting here at home. And of course, she didn't understand that. You have to be you have to make Christ the priority above everything else. What about this young man? What does it say he did? Doesn't say, does it? Apparently he disappeared too. If he stayed, I, th I think either Matthew or Luke would have included it in their gospel account. Uh, but he disappeared, and I think it's because personal... Riches, personal wealth, and possessions were the big thing to him. He'd waited a long time for his inheritance, and his dad was probably getting old, so he wasn't bailing out now. He, he liked Jesus' charisma. He liked all the incredible miracles, the wonderful teaching. He wanted to be a part of that, but he wanted his inheritance more. There was no genuine commitment to Jesus, only to money. Reminds me of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 who comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good thing do, shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And from our perspective, that's fantastic. To most modern-day evangelists, they'd say, Here's one that's ripe for the picking. What, what does Jesus say to him? Verse 21, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Is that how you get saved? I mean, do you get saved by selling everything and giving all the money to the poor? No. But if your money stands in the way and your money is your God, you're not gonna, you, then you're going to have to get rid of the money in order to get saved. That was the issue. You don't get saved by unloading your money. You just get the thing that you worship more than God out of the way so that you can get into the kingdom. In that man's case, his money was the way, was in the way. So here comes this young man, and he says, I've kept all the law. I want eternal life. And Jesus, knowing exactly what was going on in his life and his thinking, says, okay, take everything you have and give it to the poor. He hit him right in the weak spot. Because verse 22 says, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He was sorrowful that he couldn't get into the kingdom because he wanted to hold on to his money. What a fool. But a lot of people are like that. And how sad it is. Personal comfort and personal riches stand between Jesus and many people who come to him. They're attracted by him. They're astounded by him. They're easily overwhelmed by him, but they walk away lost forever because the price is too high.
Well, there was a third guy there that day, but Luke does, but Matthew doesn't mention him. However, Luke does. So let's look at Luke 9, 61 and 62. Luke 9, 61 and 62. And this man faced the desire for personal relationships. Luke 9, 61. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, when we read verse 61, we think, Why not? Run home and say goodbye to your parents. I mean, Elijah did that, or Elisha did that. Uh, kiss your mom and dad goodbye and then run on back to Jesus. It certainly isn't the same as going home to wait for your father to die in a few years so you can collect your inheritance. At the most, we're talking about a few days or weeks. But notice Jesus' answer in verses 62. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus answers the man by drawing on and adapting an old proverb from 800 B.C., that they all knew. It was a common expression in those times. The original version by the Greek poet Hesiod said, you can't plow a straight furrow when looking backwards. Now, I don't have any experience personally with doing that, but I recall an incident that occurred when I was probably 10 or 11 years old. We went over to southern Polk County near Frostproof, where my mom's oldest sister and her husband, my aunt and uncle, owned a 30-acre citrus grove. And their youngest son, my cousin, was about seven and a half years older than me, so he was around 18 at the time. <clears throat> and on the day we were there, my uncle told my cousin to go plow a section of ground in preparation for planting a new section of orange grove. And so my cousin invited me to join him on the great big John Deere tractor that they had. So I climbed up next to him and away we went. And I was standing on one side of him, leaning against the fender of one of the tractor's rear tires so I could look both backwards and forward as he plowed. And one thing I noticed very quickly was that he plowed perfectly straight rows. But he never looked behind him. So when we turned around at the end of a row, I asked him how he plowed such straight rows. And he told me, I look all the way down at the other end of the field where I'm headed and I pick out something to focus on and I never take my eye off of it. If you look back, you'll plow a crooked row every time. I never forgot that. You must keep your focus on where you're headed, not where you've been. That fits perfectly with what Jesus said to this young man. It pictures complete dedication to the task at hand. It's impossible to follow Christ with a divided heart. And that's what this young man's problem was. He's telling Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go tell my parents goodbye. Personally, I don't think he's talking about his wife and children. I think he's talking about his parents. Uh, I think he still was under the in domination and influence and control of his parents, grandparents, 
and possibly his siblings. In Greek, the verse says, to the ones in my house. Jewish homes were often the residence of several extended family members. It was common to have multiple generations all living in the same household. And Jesus knew that if he went back there, he was still too attached to the apron strings or the intimidation of his father or the emotional pleas to stay and he would never come back. There are a lot of people that way. They understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and there's salvation in no one else, but they won't go to him for salvation because they're afraid of what their family might say or do. Uh, they're afraid of being alienated and so they stay in a false religious system. I've seen this in staunch Roman Catholic families, but having grown up here in northern Pinellas County, I saw it a lot with the Greek Orthodox. Uh, I know Steve has seen it in Jewish families. Uh, as far And years gone by, in some Jewish families, they actually would hold a funeral for the individual because they considered that person who followed Christ to be dead to them. And sometimes these people that are like this young man, they, they recognize the truth about Christ and they'll show up in a sound Bible teaching church for a while just to kind of salve their conscience. They're, they're trying to plow a furrow looking backwards. I worked with a man who was Greek Orthodox who heard the gospel from me on several occasions but couldn't bear to turn his back on his family to follow Christ because he knew he would be ostracized and cut off from them. He even came here to church at Lakeside a couple of times when I was preaching uh, to hear me. And, and Daniel Maroulis has told me this, that that unwillingness to walk away from the family to follow Christ is a very common experience for him and his ministry to the Greek Orthodox people. The desire for personal relationships is greater than the desire for Christ. Listen to what, it, it comes down to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 to 37. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth, on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. <clears throat> for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If your family is that which holds you back from complete commitment to Jesus Christ, you're not fit to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this passage is not talking about vocational Christian service. This is talking about salvation. You can't get saved with those kind of strings holding you back. As far as Jesus is concerned, half-hearted commitment is no commitment. Because this, guy's, this guy could not commit everything, including his personal relationships to Christ. So Jesus offered him nothing. No half-hearted discipleship. No half-hearted anything. Personal comfort, personal riches, and personal relationships all stand in the way. You say, well, doesn't it say, but doesn't it say in John 6.37, the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out? Yes, it says that. You say, but these people came and he cast them out. Yes, but if you keep on reading in John 6, you find him saying in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. 
Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. What did he mean by that? He means you either take all or you get nothing. Belief in Jesus Christ is an all or nothing proposition. It's total identity with him. There's no such thing as partial belief or partial salvation. And so verse 66 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They weren't willing to make the full commitment and he turned them down. Coming to Jesus Christ is coming on his terms, not ours. The person who comes with full surrender, with a beatitude attitude, poor in spirit, mourning over his sin, meek before God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, crying for mercy, and being willing to be persecuted and hated and reviled for Jesus' sake. That's genuine salvation. The story is told of a slave master who went to one of his slaves one day and he said, you have a joy and a happiness that I wish I had. What is it? And the slave says, it's Jesus Christ. He said, well, I want the Christ that you have. And the slave said, then go put your white suit on and come down and work in the mud and you'll meet him. And he said, I won't do that. It's beneath my dignity. A year later, he goes back to the slave and he, he's in deeper problems. And he says, I want what you have. The slave says, what I have is Jesus Christ. The master says, well, how do I know Christ like you do? The slave says, well, you put on your white suit, you come down and work with us in the mud, and you'll meet him. He says, I won't do that. In desperation, sometimes later, he came back a third time, and he says to the slave, I want what, to have what you have. And the slave says, well, you know how. You get your white suit on and you come down and you work with us in the mud and you'll meet him. And the master says, I'll do that. And the slave says, you don't have to. Amen. The master says, what do you mean you don't have to? Slave says, you just have to be willing. That's all. You see, the Lord may not want to take away your personal comforts. He may not want to take away your personal possessions. He may not want to take away your personal relationships. But you have to be willing to let him do that if he wants to. That's the affirmation of his lordship in your life. If you come saying, I'll come, but I'm hanging on to this, or I'm hanging on to that, or I'm hanging on to this other thing, and you give him half a heart, you get nothing. If you offer him everything, he may allow you to keep what you have. Or he may take it all away. Or he may give you more than you already have it's the willingness that's the issue otherwise he is not lord no matter how much allegiance you profess to him these three walked away william mcdonald the former president of emmaus bible college aptly says quote they left christ to make a comfortable place for themselves in the world and to spend the rest of their lives hugging the subordinate, end quote. What an accurate statement. One more in closing. This is from Bishop J.C. Ryle. He wrote, quote, The saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit 
past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations, end quote. I sincerely hope no one in this room is in that category. If you believe you are, come see me. Let's close in prayer. Father, this has been a hard, hard lesson for us because it calls us to a level of commitment that most people are unwilling to make. The Jews saw all that you did and most of them walked away and rejected you. And Lord, most of the people in our lives that know about Jesus Christ choose something else above him. Lord, I pray that all of us in this room are willing to make that commitment to give up everything for Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for instructing us. May we apply these truths in our heart and lives. Bless us now as we go into the next service. May we praise you and give you the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.